Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I mean, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, does anybody know the origin of Easter? I, I, don't mean, I don't mean the Christian celebration. I got that part. I mean the word itself, <laughs> Easter. You know where the word Easter comes from? I had one person come up afterwards and say, yeah, I knew that, but I didn't say it, yeah. Wow, well done. If you didn't hear that. Yeah, it's, it's, she's known by various names. It's a, a pagan goddess, uh, Astarte, Ashtur, uh, Ishtar. She's known by various names in different cultures. Goes back to actually the, the very beginning recorded, re- recorded history of civilization. The Babylonian mystery cults celebrated in the spring the fertility goddess. You know, you're coming out of winter, uh, time of death, Ground is frozen, nothing's growing, and the pagans would go through a variety of rituals, most of them uh, incredibly immoral, to try to appease this pagan goddess so that she would bring spring. She would bring rain and sun in the right measure, and the earth would come back to life and bring produce. And that's where uh, the word, English word Easter comes from. It's the name of uh, a pagan goddess, uh, Easter, goddess Easter. So uh, where's the bunny come from? Got you on that one. You don't know where the bunny came from. Okay, you can make the connection. It's kind of obvious. Fertility, springtime, bunnies, right? They're very fertile, the symbol of this goddess. Uh, so in some reports, the, it was actually the, the goddess's consort was a male bunny. In others, it was the, the goddess herself was symbolized as a rabbit. I learned this week, and I, I confirmed this with one of my, my veterinary friends, that a, a rabbit can actually uh, become pregnant, have a litter, and become impregnated with a, a second litter before she's given birth to the first litter. Yeah, this morning I was thinking, man, I'm glad people aren't that way. <laughs> or maybe rabbits are better parents, and that's why God allowed that. I don't know. But there you go. There, there's the symbol of the bunny. So where do the eggs come from? Rabbits don't lay eggs as far as I know. So where, where do the eggs come from? This one's harder to get if you didn't get the first two. Here's the deal. The, uh, an incredible egg came down from heaven and fell into the Euphrates River. And when it hatched, Ishtar or Astarte came out. That's where the goddess came from, came from heaven in an egg. And there are a lot of you know, different symbols to the colors of the egg and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was interesting because the uh, early Puritans would not celebrate Easter because they understood this, the, the pagan background of the holiday. It wasn't actually until after the Civil War that Easter became a very regularly celebrated holiday in the U.S. Now, personally, you know, if you think about it, what, what happened here historically is that the, the gospel came into these pagan areas, and they didn't have any history with Passover. They had a holiday in the spring, um, and it was a holiday of, of resurrection, you know, new life. And so what they did is they took their old pagan practices and removed some of those practices and imported new Christian meanings into this celebration in the spring. You know, again, a celebration of new life, of resurrection. Uh, you know, personally, I don't have a problem with Christians looking at the culture around them and seeing the forms of the culture around them and, and grabbing those forms and importing new meaning in order to communicate to this culture. That doesn't bother me. What I do find strange, troubling, disturbing is, is that the symbols have actually usurped the significance of the holiday itself. So it's easy to find bunnies and eggs. It's harder to find empty crosses and empty tombs. A lot of times even in Christian homes. The the significance of the holiday is that God sent his only son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, 
took on human flesh, lived on this earth so that he could die and pay the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death. You and I have a penalty that we need to pay because of our sin. Jesus Christ took our place. He paid for us. We know that God accepted his payment because God raised him from the dead. You know, throughout the New Testament, it never says Jesus raised himself. It says God raised Jesus because God said, yes, I accept the payment of my son Jesus Christ on your behalf. So on this day, on Sunday, we celebrate the fact that God accepted the payment of Christ and raised him from the dead. That's the real significance. But what I think this illustrates is that the gospel, the true meaning of the gospel is always under attack. It's constantly under attack. In Philippians chapter 3, what Paul is doing is he is, he is reminding the Philippian believers that the gospel is under attack and they need to be ready to defend the true meaning of the gospel. I want you to read with me the first three verses in Philippians chapter three. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, or or better, now as to the remaining matters, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard or a protection for you. In other words, Paul has talked to them about this issue many, many times over and over again when he's been with them. He says, I don't mind bringing it up again because this is a constant threat to your faith. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Beware. Be on your lookout. You will be under attack. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be attacked. Beware. If you didn't pick up on it, uh, Paul is not complimenting these men. Listen to the terminology again. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Literally, beware of the mutilation. Dogs was not a complimentary term. It's not complimentary in our culture, but a lot less in that culture. They didn't have pet dogs. They didn't have dogs in their home. Dogs ran in packs, wild. They were vicious. You know, they didn't spend money on their dogs. They didn't take their dogs to grooming. Dogs weren't people too. They didn't spend money on surgery for dogs. They didn't do any of that. Dogs were, were the worst. They were the... You know, culturally to call somebody a dog, man, Paul is really, he's naming names. He says, watch out for these people because what they're doing is they're distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're adding to the work of Christ on the cross. These men are known as Judaizers. Some of them may have been believers. Some were not believers, but they were getting into the church itself. The first attack that came on the church was persecution from outside, but now as the church begins to grow, there is False doctrine welling up inside the church. Men who are adding to the gospel of Christ. If you want to see the significance of this debate, uh, read Acts chapter 15 this week. These men were probably by and large Pharisees, Jewish believers who were saying, no, it's not enough to believe in Jesus Christ. If you really want to participate in God's kingdom and you want the guarantee of eternal life, then you need to add works of the law to it. These men, they were rule makers and rule keepers. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Just one one book toward the uh, end of your Bible. Colossians chapter 2. See, apparently these men had not made a real uh, deep inroads into the Philippian church. But Paul knew that they were coming because everywhere that he preached the gospel of grace, these men came along behind and tried to add works to it. Everywhere that Paul said, no... A relationship with God is an absolutely free gift. You don't earn it. It's the grace of God. He gives it to you freely because of the work 
of Christ. These men would come along behind him and add rules that were necessary in order to have eternal life. Notice in verse 20 of chapter 2. Paul says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul says religion is dangerous because religion is man making up a list of requirements by which he measures his own righteousness and it's a list that he can meet so he can be righteous in his own strength before God. Paul's not saying that the law itself, the Old Testament law, is a bad thing, but he's saying these men missed the essence of the law, which was to teach us about the very righteous character of God, and instead they've made it into a list of rules and regulations. According to many accounts, these Pharisees actually took the law and they broke it down into 613 commandments, most of them negative. Most of them thou shalt not, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and if you meet these rules and regulations, then you are righteous. And Paul says, no, the righteousness of God is something far deeper. It's not the external man. It is internal. They said, if you want to participate in God's kingdom, you've got to keep the law. And second, you've got to be circumcised. If you're a male, you have to be circumcised. And they were going around telling Gentiles, it doesn't matter what your age is. If you want to participate in Christ's kingdom, you have to receive circumcision. Now, for us, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, you know, an archaic discussion. We don't think much about this issue. But if you were a Jew, circumcision was really, really important. It was the sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham. And so for the Jew, if they wanted their children to participate in Abraham's promises, they circumcised their children. But, but what happened with the Pharisees is they were just looking at this external rite, the act itself, and forgetting the real significance. Why did God give circumcision? We gave it as a sign of faith. If a parent circumcised his son, then that parent was saying, I believe in God's promises to Abraham. I believe that God will protect the seed of Abraham. That is, Israel will last forever because God promised it. He said he would make us as the stars of the heaven. I believe God. So it was just a symbol of faith. And Paul said for those who had more theological insight, who really understood it, What God is promising is that he's going to send a seed from Abraham and that one will fulfill all of the blessings, all of the promises that were given to Abraham. He will bring blessing to us. He will make us a blessing to all nations. And Paul goes so far to say in Galatians that that blessing, that promise of blessing is actually the gospel itself. That you can be righteous in the sight of God by faith, not by works of the law. You can be righteous in God's eyes as a gift from God. You don't have to keep striving and doubting, are you good enough? But they miss the significance of the right. And so Paul declared, now that Christ has come and he's brought the blessing of Abraham, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but he says faith working through love, that's what's important. So they emphasized works of the law. They emphasized circumcision. They also emphasized uh, ritualistic washings. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 15. These issues were a constant source of tension between uh, Jesus 
and the Pharisees. If you look in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, it says some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Jesus, your followers, they don't, they don't follow our rules and regulations. Because the Pharisees went far beyond what was written in the law. And they, they had these elaborate systems for how you were to wash your hands. And if you didn't wash your hands properly, you were in sin. I'll read you a little excerpt from one of the rabbis describing uh, the system of washing. And I want you to pay attention here because you, you're, you're going to leave here in a few minutes and go home and eat your, your ham and celebrate Easter. So you better be ready to wash properly, right? So you're not in sin while you're eating ham on Easter. Are you ready? Okay, take notes here. If one poured the first water up to the wrist and the second beyond the wrist and it went back to the hand, it is clean. If he poured out the first and the second pouring of water beyond the wrist and it went back to the hand, it's unclean. If he poured out the first water onto one hand and was reminded and poured out the second water onto both hands, they're unclean. If he poured out the first water onto both hands and was reminded and poured out the second water onto one hand, his hand which has been washed twice is clean. If he poured out water onto one hand and rubbed it on the other, it's unclean. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Did you follow that? I mean, I read it four times. I'm baffled. Did you get that? <laughs> That's the lists of washings, of the dietary regulations. Jesus said, you know, you're missing the point. Because you can clean the whole outside of the man, but what's really important to God is what's in the heart. So clean the heart. How? Come to God and ask him to clean the heart. You can't clean it yourself. But they preferred the outward sign, the the external, because they could control that and they could manage that. And then they could declare themselves righteous before God. And they had all kinds of dietary restrictions, worrying about what they ate or what they didn't eat. And Jesus said, you know, don't worry so much about what you eat and what you don't eat because what you put into the mouth, that doesn't defile the man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles the man because you can't make yourself sinful by what you eat, but what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart and that's what God cares about. So then, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and joy and peace. It's the really substantial things in life, not the externals. But they were focused on all the external matters, the things that they could accomplish on their own. They were worried about Sabbath observance, things you could do and things that you could not do on the Sabbath. I want you to turn and look at another debate between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 12, verse 9. And this happened on a Sabbath day. It says, departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? They wanted Jesus to heal the man so that they could say Jesus was a sinner because he worked on the Sabbath. Because in their set of rules and regulations, it was a sin to work on the Sabbath. Even so much so that if you spit on the Sabbath, that was sin. Because when you spit, your spit would come down, it would hit the dust of the ground, and your spit would combine with it and make mud, and that's an act of creation, that's work. You can't spit on the Sabbath, it's sin. 
All kinds of rules and regulations. So Jesus is here. He's confronted with a man whose hand is shriveled. The man longs to be made whole. His body's not working right. And they ask Jesus, is it, is it lawful or is it sin? Jesus responds, what man is there among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And everybody around but the Pharisees, they get it. They go, yeah, that makes sense. Man is more valuable than a sheep. God made the Sabbath for us, for our benefit, to give us rest. Goes on, says, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Seems like an overreaction, doesn't it? You know, Jesus is there with the man. He says, he doesn't even touch him. He doesn't make mud and put it on his hand. He doesn't do anything. He just says, stretch out your hand. Jesus steps back, stretch out your hand. Man does, and he's healed, and he's whole. And they say, man, how are we going to kill Jesus? Why? Well, because we can't control him. He won't submit to our list of rules and regulations, our standard of righteousness. So we've got to get rid of him. Because what he is saying is so appealing speaks of God's love and his compassion for his people and that righteousness goes much deeper. It's a righteousness that we can't produce on our own. How did, how did, how did Paul understand these people? Well, he understood them because he was one of them. The Pharisees were people who wanted to establish their own righteousness before God rather than receiving the righteousness of Christ. And Paul had been one of them. So he understood their mentality, their mindset. Look back in chapter three of Philippians again. And verse 4, these were men who focused on the external. These are men who took pride in their heritage. They took pride in their accomplishments. Verse 4, Paul says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's He's saying, Philippian believers, if you want to follow their path, let me tell you, you can't even reach to my standard. And the standard of God is far higher than even I have reached. So let me describe my background to you. It says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul says, I look at my heritage and I'm as good as it gets. I'm as good as it gets on earth. You're Gentiles. If you haven't been circumcised already, if you go back, you're 20 or 30 years old, well, you can't really keep this commandment that was given to Abraham. You can't go back to the eighth day of your life. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. You can never be a Jew. You can never be of the nation of Israel. You can't meet that standard. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Gentiles, you don't have a tribe. And you can't get a tribe. But I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe that stuck with Judah. The only one that stuck with with David's family. Benjamin is the territory in which Jerusalem resides, the great city of God. You can't connect to any of that, but I look at my heritage and he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a, I'm a Jew of Jew. I'm as good as it gets. As to my heritage, now as to my accomplishments, he says, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless, as to the law I'm a Pharisee, 
I'm a Jew of Jews. These are the ones who, they're, they're the army rangers. They're the navy seals of spirituality. You know, they, they, if, if others keep the rules, boy, we keep more rules than they keep. And not only that, but I'm, I'm not just a Pharisee, but I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees because I persecuted the church. Something came up that attacked Judaism and I put these people to death. As to the law, these standards, this list of 613 rules, he says, I have kept all of them from my birth. Paul is not saying that he was sinless, but he's saying according to the standards of men, I got as far as the law can take a person. I'm as righteous as a person can be. And Paul says, but compared to Jesus Christ, all these things are as nothing. I set them aside. How about you? If you were standing before the Almighty God this afternoon and you longed to be with him, you said, I, you know, I, I want to be in heaven. I want eternal life. I want to be with you, God. What would you plead? What would you argue? Would you go back through a list of your heritage, born in a Christian home, born in a Christian nation? Would you look at your heritage? Would you look at your family? Would you look at your accomplishments? And whenever I, I've talked to folks, I, I've heard, I can't even tell you how many times, I ask them the question, what, what, are, you, what are you counting on? What they say is, well, I, I know that I'll stand before God and I, and I can say to God, compared to the people around me, God, I did pretty good. Really, God, if you really weigh things and, and you really understand what was going on and you have insight into people, God, you'll recognize that compared to the people around me, I really did pretty well. I think you should let me in. But Jesus said, that's not the standard by which God judges. Remember, he told a story about a Pharisee who went into the temple and in the pride of his heart, wanting to establish his own righteousness before God, he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. God, when you really compare things and you look at me compared to some of these other people around, even these people, look at this guy over here. Compare me to him. Boy, Lord, compared to Chris. You know, Chris is here, but I'm here. And his heart, this Pharisee's heart swelled with pride. Compared to others, Father, I don't lie, cheat, steal. I don't even tolerate those who do. You might want to hold on to that whoop. Compared to others. Or I've had people tell me countless times, well, I'm going to stand before God and say, God, when you really understand my life accurately and you look at my good versus my bad, my good deeds versus my bad deeds, my good will far outweigh my bad. God said, I don't judge by that standard. What are you going to do with your bad? There's a penalty to be paid for that. I don't compare the two. Who has paid the price for your sin, for your failure, for your misdeeds? They must be paid for. Do you want to pay yourself or do you want to let Jesus Christ pay for them? That's what Paul says. He says, when I look back at my own history, my heritage, when I look back at my accomplishment, I set all of those aside and instead I cling to Jesus Christ. Look back with me in Philippians chapter three again. Verse three, he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put absolutely no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. 
We worship in the spirit of God. It's not about a place. It's not about external things. We're worshiping because the spirit of God dwells in us and because he is in us, the righteousness of Christ is in us. You know, a a secularized version of Easter is a dangerous thing, but I don't think it's nearly as dangerous as a ritualized version of Easter. And as Christians, we are under that temptation to ritualize Easter, to just going through, go through the motions of Easter. And, and I'm not even saying that ritual is a bad thing. As a matter of fact, Tristy and I have been, we've been going back recently and reading some of the, the liturgy of the ancient church surrounding Easter, and there's a lot of great theology in it. There's a lot of beauty in it. But what happens as Christians is we, we go through the, the motions for so long that we forget the substance of this celebration of Resurrection Day. And even in our own homes, the empty cross and the empty tomb gets replaced with bunnies and eggs or with our own works instead of the righteousness of Christ. And Paul says, no, I set all that aside and instead, literally he says, I boast in Christ. Christ in his day was a mockery. Christ brought shame and reproach upon Paul. And yet he says, I cling to Christ. Everywhere he went, people would laugh at him and mock him. What are you talking about? The infinite, eternal God took on human flesh. God, eternal, died. God became man and then rose from the dead. No one rises from the dead. Paul, you're a fool. Your great learning has made you mad. He said, no, instead, I'll cling to Christ. I'll cling to Christ. Notice what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is not setting aside his heritage or his family. What he's saying is, I'm counting them as loss. I'm turning not away from heritage, but I'm turning away from self-confidence. I'm not trusting in those things any longer. Instead, I'm trusting just in Christ. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have considered as loss for Christ's sake. Now Paul really gets on a roll. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I want you to notice here, or this is a personal letter. Paul wrote a personal letter to this group of believers, small group of believers, probably a small church. Epaphroditus carried it back to them. Maybe he was the one who read it. He stood up in front of this group of believers and he read this letter. And as he read it, this is what they heard. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but human excrement so that I may gain Christ. My translation tames it down a bit because Americans are very sensible people. But this personal letter was read out loud and it was meant to shock them. Paul's saying, look, I I say those things are not just nothing But actually, I should probably just take them and put them in the sewer because when I look at my own accomplishments, it causes me to swell up with pride and I have confidence in my flesh and I need to set them aside because I only have Christ. 
And when I come before God and I stand before him, I shouldn't be pleading what I have done, but only what Christ has done. And he has accomplished it fully and finally and completely. But the religion of man says, no, there's something that must be added to the work of Christ. That's why it's so dangerous. You know, and that may be adding my own good works, weighing my good and my bad, giving to charity, uh, helping out the orphans. Uh, It may be my Christian heritage, it may be my works, coming to church all the time, I'm, I'm in the choir, I got baptized, I help out my neighbor, I do all of these good things. It may be something else other than Christ, but Christ alone is the reason that we have confidence before God. Amen? Hey, that is the message of Resurrection Day. As we close, I'd like you to spend a little bit of time, just go before the Lord and ask the Lord to reveal to you, what are, what are you trusting in as you stand before the Lord? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you right now to go before God and say, God, I set aside all of my self-confidence and instead I cling just to Jesus Christ. His work that he accomplished on the cross is enough for me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and maybe you're trying to prove to God that you're good enough to keep this relationship, go for the Lord. Ask him to reveal to you, God, what am I trusting in? What, what causes me to swell with self-righteous pride and maybe look around at others and say, wow, oh, compared to him, compared to her, I'm okay. Let's just spend a few moments before the Lord and then I've asked him to come up. He's going to close us in song. Let's just bow before the Lord and ask him to speak to us each individually. end this time the same way we began, which is with the hymn, Christ the Lord is risen to get today. Let's stand and sing that together. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We trust just in him. Simply to the cross of Christ we cling. Father, we thank you that that cross is empty, the tomb is empty. On this day, we celebrate the fact that you raised Jesus from the dead. His work is done, and so his work in us is promised. We're confident. Father, I pray that you would remind us throughout this week to place our confidence in Christ. Father, I pray that we would be filled with the joy of the Lord. We radiate it and we would share it with others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. He is risen. God bless you.